Coming up, a conversation with Wayne Williams, candidate for mayor of Colorado Springs. This is 6035 Media. Casting an informed vote is your right and your duty as a citizen. I'm Brian Grossman, executive editor of 6035. And I'm Shelley Roars, spokesperson for the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak region. We're teaming up to bring you conversations with the candidates in the April 2023 Colorado Springs City Election. So this interview is both an episode of the new 6035 Vote podcast. And the League's Making Democracy Work podcast. So let's get to it. So welcome, Wayne. Thanks for being here with us today. Um, Why don't you tell our listeners um, and our viewers a little bit about yourself and why you're running? Okay. Um, My name is Wayne Williams. I have lived in Colorado Springs for a little over 30 years. Uh, My wife and I chose to make this our home because we fell in love with Colorado Springs when I had a job offer. Uh, I'd never been here before that job offer. I came out, fell in love with it, and uh, got involved really quickly. Uh, About two years after I moved here, Mayor Bob Isaac asked me to serve on the Colorado Springs Housing Authority Board. And that began a, a series of volunteer and other positions within the government, um, and trying, and also with nonprofits, and trying to make things better. Uh, I'm running for mayor because I want to continue the progress we've made as a city in the last eight years. I want us to continue to go forward, and I'm excited about the opportunities here in Colorado Springs. Thank you, sir. Thanks. All right, let's get into some specifics. Sure. Uh, and- you won't be a stranger to this first one. It has to do with water and development, annexation, the whole thing. Uh, what's your stand on the 128% water rule for extending water and other utilities to flagpole annexed developments? So we live in the arid west, and that means we have to focus on making sure we have enough water for our community. Uh, as chair of Colorado Springs Utilities, I've been very involved in that process. We have acquired water from the Arkansas Valley in a way we've never done it before, and it's one of the things I'm most proud of. We have worked with farmers to upgrade their irrigation systems, and then we buy the water that is saved. We just signed an agreement with Bent County a couple of months actually last year, uh, and it's an agreement to allow us to acquire 15,000 acre-feet from the Arkansas Valley, which is enough for 100,000 people. We've already bought 3,000 of those acre-feet, and that is part of what we have to do as we look at changing ecologies, changing circumstances, particularly on the Colorado River. 70% of Colorado Springs utilities water comes out of the Colorado when you count reuse. That means we have to be aware of what's going on. And when you see Lake Powell and Lake Mead, you can't sit there unrealistically saying, well, there will always be enough water. And so the existing water ordinance, and this is important to start with, is before we adopted the new ordinance, it said we will annex an area if we have enough water. And this is the odd standard that prior councils had adopted quote, for the foreseeable future, mm-hmm. close quote. I don't know what that means. I, I challenge anyone to say what that means, but what it results in is a very arbitrary and changing standard depending on whether someone is feeling good that day, maybe whether it rained, um, and that's not a standard that we should have. And so I was one of those who helped lead the fight to adopt a specific standard that is actually something people can follow. And so what we've said is the recommendation from our professional staff at Colorado Springs Utilities was 130%. We adopted a compromise that was at 128%. I voted for it, so I absolutely support it. 
it is absolutely critical that we have a buffer. And, and let me talk about two reasons why you need to have that buffer. One of those is we don't know what the future holds on the Colorado. It could be less. It could be, you know, I guess you could myopically think it will always be there, will always generate plenty of water. But I don't see the evidence to back up that view. And so we have to prepare for the possibility that we may have curtailments of our water supply on the Colorado. The other thing you have to recognize is that it takes time to acquire water rights and to get those water rights perfected. And so it's not like you can turn around one day and say, oh, someone wants to build a new house. Let's go buy some water and so we have it here. It is, in some case, more than a decade-long process to acquire this sufficient water rights. We have built a delivery system, Southern Delivery, but that's only as effective as the water that goes into it. And so we have to make sure that we have that water. I think it absolutely made sure to define that buffer. Our first priority must be to protect the citizens, property owners here in Colorado Springs. As we look at potential annexations, as we acquire additional water, as we've been engaged in doing, it is appropriate to look at that. Uh, but our first priority has to be with our residents here. In terms of how remote a site, um, you know, there's there's kind of three levels of what is desirable in terms of annexation. First is an enclave, right, where your city already surrounds it or basically surrounds it. And there are some of those that we've been engaged in, um, area kind of northeast of Academy and uh, Austin Bluffs in that area we've, we've acquired and we've uh, annexed some properties there. Again, always with the consent of the property owner. I emphasize that, not interested in any way, shape, or form in a forcible annexation. Mm -hmm. Second category are properties that are adjacent to the city, uh, where it's a logical extension of services. And then the third category, which some of these fall in, um, is something that is remote to the city, in some cases several miles away. That poses additional challenges in terms of utility lines, in terms of ongoing law enforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, as the police are driving through two, mi two miles of unincorporated land, that's less time on the city uh, patrolled roads. And so... We have to look at that with a little bit different lens. There may be times when it still might be appropriate. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I think the um, north uh, entrance to the Air Force Academy, which we did an annexation for so that we have a new visitor center for our community, helping our tourism industry uh, and helping the Air Force Academy by putting the visitor center outside the security gate as opposed to inside the security gate. We did an annexation, and it was via a small road. Mm -hmm. But that made sense for a specific purpose. There are others, and in fact, the ordinance that was adopted actually has those exceptions built in, has an exception for enclaves, but it also has an exception if there are specific reasons, some benefit to the city. Um, so as we look at it, maybe you know an argument someone might make is this will provide affordable housing for our enlisted personnel. Um, and so they can come forward and make that argument. So they're not precluded from doing that, but I do think there are different standards as to what we're looking for. Um, 
I support a growing city, but I support first making sure that we have the water for it and that growth pays its own way. Okay. You're going to get more water from Shelly. We probably want to keep the responses a little shorter so that we can get to to all of them. Thanks, Wayne. We, we don't want to cut you off. We want to get to all the questions that we've asked everybody else. So, Shelly? Yes, and you may have – the second part of my question it may be pretty easy to answer, but number one, we waste a lot of water. Landscaping uses about 78% of our water usage, whether that's the resort down the street with a broken sprinkler for a couple of days that didn't fix it or the – golf course that the city owns or the my neighbor who decides to plant Kentucky bluegrass right there's a lot of waste water wasted water there how can we do better there and then also should the city consider extending water and other utilities to subdivisions located outside the city that might never be annexed right um, as part of being a regional water provider so uh, let me let me address the those two because they really are separate questions. Mm -hmm. The first of those is we are doing significant work with respect to water conservation. We use the same amount of water now that we did 20 years ago. And if you look at more than 100,000 people in our community during that time, uh, we have reduced our per capita water use consumption by a significant amount and actually by, in many cases, much more than some of our colleagues. Uh, We've also, though, as we adopted the new zoning code for Colorado Springs, provided that in new areas that the amount of that bluegrass you were referring to is limited. And so this is the first time we've adopted formal limits that are requirements in the zoning code. We've done that with respect to new development. I am not interested in, would prefer to avoid forcibly ripping off or ripping out somebody's bluegrass. That's not what I want to do. And we rejected that as an alternative. But when we look at new development, it very much is appropriate to say, okay, in new development, we're going to say your water usage needs to be significantly better. Uh, So we do work with respect to conservation. With respect to some of the other things, we are trying to use non-potable water, so reuse water, for a golf course or other uses, and we've done that. Uh, and, And that is... Important, we have the right to use some of this water to extinction, and so I'd rather not be using first-use water on the golf course. I'd rather be first-use in my tap, Mm -hmm. and then afterwards that reuse can often be appropriate with respect to some of the outdoor uses. You are right. Most of the water is used outdoors. Most of the water in the state is used for agriculture, uh, which, again, is exclusively an outdoor use, but there are more efficient ways of irrigating agriculture. That's part of what I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of things that we need to be working on as a state. Okay. And then that second part was, um, what about the city considering extending water and other utilities to subdivisions located outside city limits that might never be annexed but be, as part of being a regional water provider? So there are a number of ways that we serve as a regional water provider. One of those is what's called CTD, or we convey, treat, and deliver someone else's water. Mm-hmm. So a water district, and we've got at least one of these in the northern part of the county, acquires water in the Arkansas Valley or somewhere else, and then we convey that through the southern delivery system or one of our other pipelines when we have the excess capacity. That makes a lot of sense for us because what we do is we amortize the cost of that infrastructure over a greater 
group of people, which reduces, frankly, the cost on our ratepayers, which is an important consideration. Uh, in terms of actually taking the water that we own, uh, when we have excess, that might make some sense. Right now, we have to look at any of those very skeptically and with concern. Um, and so we know we have enough water for the next few years. Uh, and so short-term agreements to help an entity through a, a particular process, uh, if, for example, groundwater is contaminated, as has happened before, uh, that might be in a very appropriate time. Long-term or permanent commitments are a little I, I am hesitant about there may be appropriate circumstances, but it'd be very fact dependent. Okay, thank you. Uh, Wayne, could you explain where you stand on accessory dwelling units uh, in residential areas, single family residential areas? So, our new zoning code that we did adopt uh, has specific zoning that permits accessory dwelling units, allowing people to make the choice to move into a type of community or a, a residential area that allows accessory dwelling units. With respect to existing single-family zoning, uh, for most people, their largest investment they make is their home. And so making sure that we protect those property values and those investments is part of the zoning code. So what we have done is, after an extensive series of public hearings, uh, public input, is adopted what I think is a middle road, where if it's an integrated accessory dwelling unit, meaning it's part of the house, we have a different standard than if it's a detached. Uh, and so there are circumstances in which an integrated accessory dwelling unit is appropriate. Uh, I think of circumstances where someone may have a family member uh, that wants to stay with them, uh, but also wants some independence. And we've got a process now at the city where that can be accomplished. Uh, but in terms of wholesale restructuring all of our single family zone, to a duplex zone, that's not something that we chose to do. It's not something I would favor. Okay, thank you. Chelly? Yes, sir, also a housing question. Um, how do you plan to address our city's affordable housing issues? Well, as I mentioned, I got my start when Bob Isaac asked me to serve on the Colorado Springs Housing Authority Board. We've done a number of different things, uh, both there and on city council. One of the things we did when I was on the Housing Authority Board, we had a project, an apartment unit called Creekside at Norwood that was built in conjunction with Peterson Air Force Base so that our enlisted personnel had choices for where they lived when they were off base. Uh, on city council, we've addressed it very strongly in a couple ways. One of those is to make for affordable and attainable housing a sliding scale of a sales tax exemption. And so we have a sales tax rebate. And what folks may not realize is that right now on homes generally, there's a sales tax collected. And so if, uh, as, as one of our folks was saying, when, who was building some affordable uh, housing, the lumber package is $100,000. The sales tax on that, when you add in all of the state, city, and county, is another 8000 bucks. And so by eliminating the city portion, we have helped make that more affordable. I, adv I have advocated with a number of legislators that the state should do the same thing uh, because when we're talking about how do we incentivize the creation of affordable and attainable housing, we do that through, I think, letting the market and nonprofits work uh, as opposed to large government projects. I'm not interested really in a Cabrini Green. Um, and so we are – that's one thing we did. We also established, you know, I mentioned acquiring new water rights out of the Arkansas. We established a water resource fee uh, that is significant. 
and what we also did, though, is establish a $2 million fund at Colorado Springs Utilities under my leadership that would uh, cover that water resource fee for affordable and attainable housing. So again, uh, saving in, the case, in that case almost $6,000 per home. So there are a lot of things that we can do to help that process. But again, it's working with our nonprofit community. It's working with uh, anyone who wants to build housing uh, to make sure that that is an option that's available and that's explored. Uh, and it does make a significant difference. So those are the things we've already done. I want to keep working on things like that. We've added at least 1,000 units of affordable and attainable housing each year during the four years I've been on council. I want to continue that as the next mayor. Thank you. And the water resource fee, you said that's not charged to affordable housing. There is a fund that covers that cost for affordable housing, Great. yes. Thank you we very much. It. Appreciate that. Brian? All right. Let's talk public safety. Uh, CSPD is short somewhere around 70 officers from authorized strength, all while we're breaking homicide and car crash records. Uh, what do you do about public safety and the police department specifically? So we have added, uh, during the four years I've been on city council, 62 new police officer positions. Uh, but we have had challenges in filling and retaining uh, those positions. So one of the things we have done to address that is to go to a year-round academy. Because it used to be that you would be made an offer as a police officer and the training academy might start in four months. Well, in this economy, hoping that someone is still available to come to work four months later is not the best decision. And so we have become more nimble. We need to continue to do that. We should never lower the standards that we have because it's important we are trusting these individuals with our lives and safety. Uh, I serve as an appointee of Governor Jared Polis on the Peace Officer Standard Training Board. Uh, it's important to have those standards and to maintain those standards, and we at Colorado Springs need to do that, but there are things we can do. Uh, and we have been working on that. We've added academies. We've expanded the size of the academy. Uh, we need to continue to expand the number of police officers. The reason we need to do that in part is so that we are not simply reactive, so that we have the the personnel to be proactive and address needs ahead of time, to engage with the community. That's part of what we've done. I also helped establish the Law Enforcement Transparency and Advisory Commission, uh, which has provided some input and key input on how to do certain things like establishing alternative response teams, uh, because it's not always the best mode to have a police officer respond. One of the things we just did is move the long-term parking issues that the police department used to handle over to code enforcement. So to again, free up police officers so they can concentrate on the key factors that they are needed and their specialized training is necessary. Okay, thank you, Wayne. Shelly? How are we doing on time, Brian? Uh, I think we've got Go ahead and do yours. I got one more, and then okay. we'll let them wrap up. <laughs> All right. So I've got two more kind of questions. These are league questions specifically. Um, what are your thoughts on moving spring municipal elections that you're involved in right now to the fall that would help increase voter turnout? Data shows that. And then during your election year, like this year, save the city approximately $600,000 per election year. And if you're in a runoff, another couple hundred thousand. That's uh, one question. Okay. So first, I don't actually think it saves that money because the city would still have to pay a cost to join the county election. That's the way elections work in Colorado. Uh, so the county would send a bill to the city. Uh, so it doesn't save as much money as has been indicated there. 
I am concerned in terms of driving up the cost of campaigning. Uh, it prices people out when you are competing to buy TV and radio time with national candidates and multi-million dollar Senate campaigns and presidential campaigns. And so you make it much harder for people to get information about the mayor's race, about city council race, because it gets lost in the noise. Not just in terms of paid advertising, but also in terms of earned media and news coverage, because the news stories are all about president, Senate, governor, and you would lose that focus on local issues. The other significant concern I have is you have an increasingly hyperpartisan November election cycle. And moving it to that hyperpartisan election cycle, uh, I think, takes away from the nonpartisan nature of city council elections. We have a very functional community where we actually pass budgets, where we do things, where we work cooperatively together, even folks from different political philosophies. And I look at other places, Denver and particularly D.C., and that's not what I want to embrace. I think having a separate election helps us do that and focuses it in a nonpartisan way. So if it weren't moved necessarily to uh, a presidential election, you're during those sorts of elections? So I looked at that, mm -hmm. right? And I actually made a proposal along those lines when I was serving as county clerk. The challenge in that is when do you do the runoff? Mm -hmm. Um, and so any November election has a challenge with when that runoff for mayor occurs mm -hmm. because you were either in the middle of the holidays or you have a very long lag time between the first election right. and the second. And when we looked at it before, that's not something we were able to resolve. Okay. My question is, if you're elected mayor, do you foresee any new uh, taxes or fees? Um, we... As mayor, I will continue to look at how we best address things. I have referred issues to the ballot. Uh, for example, as a county commissioner, I referred the initial Pikes Peak RTA mm -hmm. uh, to the ballot, and I will continue to do that where it is appropriate. I am not running on a campaign of let's raise taxes. I think we ought to keep taxes low, and we actually have one of the lowest costs per citizen of any of the 100 largest cities in America and vastly less per citizen than Aurora and Denver. So we need to continue that. But there are sometimes needs that may be addressed. One that I think is worthy of discussion is our lodging and auto rental tax, mm -hmm. a tax paid by people who don't live here, and that could help address some of our tourist burden parks and some of the other issues in our community. But again, only by going through the people. I don't. I never seek to bypass the people's right to vote on those issues. I've been an advocate for referring things to the ballot. We've done that with Tabor retentions for parks, for public safety and for fire mitigation. And I think those are appropriate for the city to continue to do. Uh, you mentioned LART, and we do have one of the lowest LART taxes of any major city. Do you have a ballpark figure in mind? or uh... the, the discussion that I've heard from some of the people who actually pay the LART uh, is instead of the 2% that it's there to make it for, that study two, has two percent, uh, 3% total, right? There's a 2% tax on lodging and 1% 1, 1 on automobile or the other way around? Well, it's, it's 2%. Right now, it's 2% on lodging, 1% on automobile. Right. Yep. So it's not 3%, 3 total. total because you're not right. paying both of those at the same time. Right. You're either paying the 2 or the 1. Right. And one of those is to increase that to 4 and 2 four is and two. one of the proposals that I've seen. But again, it's up to the people ultimately to make that decision. Okay. But it is one of those where it's people who aren't regular 
citizens in our community who would be then covering some of those costs mm-hmm. to cover those things like Guard of the Gods and improvements that are necessary there. Right. Okay. Shelley. Here's our final question for me. Um, what are your thoughts on raising city council pay to a reasonable amount to be inclusive of others who do not have the ability to do this as their only job like retirees? I'm 60. Uh, of the elected members of city council, the youngest of us were born in 1963, the year I was born in. And so what you have is a scenario that makes it very hard for people who have a job, who are working, to be able to serve on city council. I do believe it should be changed. Um, I make 271 a month after uh, taxes, and so that doesn't cover minimum wage. Uh, it seems like at least to that level, but I've supported those in the past, and, and part of it is it has to be the right timing. But city council should not be a destination job. I don't favor making it like the 100000 plus that it is in Denver. I don't favor that. But I do think something above 271 a month is appropriate. Thank you very much. Do you have a ballpark there? I'm going to ask you about ballparks. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I've heard different proposals. One of those would make it a certain percentage of the marriage salary. Mm-hmm. Um one of those would make it at least so you make the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are different ones that are there. I'm supportive of looking at all of those to figure out what is the best way to address it. I give the caveat that the voters have turned down that in mm-hmm. the past. Um, but it is one of those where you do, you know, we've got a number, and I love retired citizens and the, what they give to this community, but you shouldn't have to be retired to be on city council. All right. Uh, Wayne, will you give us the elevator outro, two minutes or so, on uh, why you're running again and why people should vote for you? I'm Wayne Williams. I'm the only person with elected executive experience who's running. I served as clerk and recorder and secretary of state. I made voting easier. I was honored to receive the League of Women Voters Leader of Democracy Award a couple years back. Uh, I have tried to make sure that we work in a different way. And uh, it's interesting that I'm sometimes criticized because I try to work in a nonpartisan way. But I think that's exactly what the next mayor needs to do. I've got a history and a record of doing that and of delivering results. As Secretary of State, my last four bills to the Senate had zero no votes through a divided uh, process. I've worked closely with both Democrats and Republicans at the legislature and at the national level. We need to do that in our community. We need to continue the progress that we have made going forward. My emphasis are on public safety, where we've added 62 new police, 66 firefighters, three new fire stations. Uh, transportation infrastructure will help create the Pikes Peak RTA and secure the funding for widening of I-25, the Cosmics Project, it was then known. So I'm going to focus on transportation, on infrastructure, on public safety, and making sure that our economy continues to grow as it has in the last eight years. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, And you've been watching or listening to a joint podcast effort by 6035 Media and the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak Region. Be sure to follow Making Democracy Work and and check out lwvppr.org for more information regarding our candidate forums in March. And keep checking in with 6035 Vote to make sure your vote is an informed one. This podcast is produced and directed by Dave Gardner. I'm Brian Grossman, Executive Editor. And I'm Shelley Roars with the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak Region. See you next time. 
Hi, I'm Dave Gardner. And I'm Nick Raven. We're the podcast producers here at 6035 Media. 6035 Vote is just one of a growing family of hyperlocal podcasts that we're creating. And these are for you, someone who wants to engage fully in your community. We've got the 6035, which is a quick, lively recap of the top news stories of the week. It's my favorite. It's really great and often funny. I love having you as a guest, actually. I do, too. And then we have Hot Takes and Stirring Breaks, which is a potpourri of news and commentary about movies, gaming, TV, streaming, and just so much more. It's for youthful heart and... You know, that could be anyone, really. Yeah, I'm surprised I even really enjoy it because Nick hosts that and uh, he's he's witty. Well, and the cool thing is that you can watch both of these podcasts on YouTube. Or you can listen to them on the go in your favorite podcast app. And there's a couple more, uh, but you can also visit 6035media.org slash podcast to see them, browse them, sample them. And then subscribe to the ones that you like. And then subscribe to this YouTube channel. Yeah, and if you really love it all, like we do, uh, you Which can just you can just subscribe to the sixty thirty five podcast network podcast, which is a conglomeration of all the episodes, all the brilliance and humor that emanates from the studio. Absolutely, and there's a lot of it. So like and subscribe today, and go listen to them all or watch them. What he said. Good. Thanks. Got it. That wasn't so painful.